All right, guys, welcome back to Spice Radio. We're here in uh, Spice Rack Studios for a special family edition. We've got Ben Job, that's me, with uh, Mr. Rick Job. Hey, I, I've known him uh, my entire life. <laughs> every every minute. <laughs> that's right. All twenty five years of it so far, and uh, I think we're still pretty good friends. So that's yes. what. <laughs> yes, we are. That's a rare and wonderful thing. Indeed, but uh, Rick's been working up in Nashville with a new band, the Wondering Cowboys, not the Wondering, or Cowboys, but the Wondering Cowboys. Not yeah. the wandering cowboys. No, no, we're just wondering. We're philosophical. I've, <laughs> I've, I've decided I had two degrees in theology, and I'm still wondering. So, <laughs> that's kind of like a professional wonder when you think about it. It is, yes. Philosophy makes it even worse. <laughs> well, uh, a lot of you guys might know uh, Rick. He's been playing around here for a very long time since before I even existed. Uh, yes. How did you get started in Huntsville? Well. Uh, we came up here a long time ago, right after college. Margie and I met at University of Alabama, and I was a classical guitar major. And we we moved up to Huntsville because I got a job here teaching classical guitar and um, at Charlie Higgins' old place. People don't remember that, probably not, but um, Charlie was a real proponent of classical guitar. And so I got a job up here teaching guitar, and Margie got a job in special ed in the school system, so that was uh, that was a unique thing. We also went up to Montesano, and we're totally happy to see uh, that there was ice on all the trees, and it just looked like a winter wonderland. And <laughs> we were very impressed to find a city that had a state park right in the middle of town. So that was that that kind of like was the clincher for us. Now well, that would have been in 1978 thereabouts. Yeah, that's one uh, nice thing about Huntsville, and I hope it stays that way. Is like the land trust kind of creeps in, and uh, we've got Big Spring Park, which will hopefully stay intact and all that good stuff. And it, yeah, it's not, it's like right at our doorstep, which is nice. Uh, so, were you performing a lot uh, back then already? Or were you mostly just focusing on teaching? No, I performed a lot more when I was um, younger, in my late teen years, and for at least 10 years or so, I'd performed a lot in, uh, I lived in Chicago and uh, Boston, went to the Berkeley School of Music in Boston, and then I lived in San Francisco for a number of years back in the day, and uh, all I did then was perform music, and then over the years I've had several other occupations, and <laughs> one was to uh, repair musical instruments, and uh, then I started a music store called the fret shop and i owned that for 10 years and and finally sold that and then i went into multimedia and did a lot of media work in this very studio right here what is now called spice rack studio used to have no name at all no it did have a name <laughs> it, actually it did have a name it was called random access music and that was the name of my company here and i did a lot of multimedia audio for uh this would have been in the in the uh, 80s uh, for NASA, and um, I did music and sound effects and robot voices and all kinds of stuff, and I ended up doing some music for the Monsters, Inc. video game for Disney in this studio, mm -hmm. and we also worked with Grammy-winning uh, singers like uh, Mark and Joey Kibble from Take Six, 
um, we we recorded a huge uh, gospel concert out at uh, Oakwood College and worked on that album for 14 months in two studios and this was wow. one of them so a lot of things a lot of things have happened in this little little studio that is now spice rack studio yeah it's it's done us good so far and uh, I, w I wanted to ask you a little bit about uh, the building of the studio and if uh, you had any like set plans when you're building it like it has to have this one thing or these certain things to make it uh, really usable for your space like did you have any uh, did you have any straight concerns that you had to cover when you're making this studio a reality well actually when we originally uh, looked at the house I was considering using the uh, closing in the garage and building it into a studio and it was upstairs and then really it wasn't until we actually bought the house that I realized the downstairs the the basement was perfect because it has a walk-in door entrance and it had its own fridge and bathroom and uh, two or three little separate rooms and uh, one of the rooms is higher up than the main room and so that meant oh this could be a control room and then the main room has a trapezoid shape as a result of the stairs going up and having a ceiling on the bottom of the stairs and so that really cuts out a lot of uh, standing waves and, and different mm -hmm. things and I realized real early that if I recorded vocalists under that trapezoid it, it got a really good sound uh, but then we got uh, uh, a loan to renovate our house uh, it was in a kind of a uh, renovation neighborhood at the time mm -hmm. and uh, so I had the little ante rooms concreted and uh, then my dad came up here from Mobile and he was always a good carpenter and he helped me build out the whole studio so uh, the main things that I w was looking for were just already here and that was a a main room there big enough for a drum set and a piano and and then um, uh, another room for the control room we put a big double pane window in there and uh, solid wood doors and then we took a little space that was originally just where the refrigerator sat in the basement and uh, finished it out into an isolation booth and uh, and wired the whole thing so you could run mics and headphones throughout and uh, it just got built up little by little but originally it was actually just a multimedia uh, audio studio it wasn't mm -hmm. designed to be a full recording studio but little by little it, it became one and then I could use it for all kinds of purposes recording albums and different things but my main focus at the beginning was multimedia audio on computers was there any um i mean the, the studio is it's sort of uh it's smaller than a lot of huge you know these old studios that have been around but were, are there any uh uh kind of workarounds you had to use with this specific space uh, like any any kind of ways you had to accommodate for certain bands or certain sounds where you had to kind of use the geometry especially yeah actually there is and you know i just kind of the space I just kind of inherited the space and so I couldn't do much about it mm -hmm. the size uh, and but in order to get um, good isolation say to record bands um, 
we would, for example, put the bass amplifier in the bathroom. Right. And then we would put a... Which we uh, still use to this day. That still, trick. <laughs> that's a good trick. And, uh, it's where we put all the bassists. The yeah, bassists have to go in the bathroom. It's the, just the way it is. That's right. And then we put. We used to put a... Uh, we didn't put the bass player in the bathroom. <laughs> well, we, we don't either. Are you putting him in the bathroom? No, no. no. Okay. We, we let him come out occasionally. <laughs> we, ran, we ran him a cable from the central room, but we would put the amp in the bathroom, and then we mm-hmm. would put a, a small foam uh, mattress around it, put a mic in there on the cone, and so we got some isolation. We did learn rather early on that we had to uh, tape over the, the door knocker to the bathroom <laughs> because it would rattle and vibrate. And it's probably still got a piece of duct tape. We've on already it. relearned that lesson, actually. Oh, I, uh, you relearned it. There's a, a little knocker on our our uh, door to our bathroom down here. Right. And uh, yeah, I, I untaped it because I was like, oh, that's the tape's ugly, and it's it, a, so. And then and then immediately after that, we started recording something, and that, lo and behold, it's rattling once again. So the tape is back on there. Yeah. Brand new after uh, so many years. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, I think it says something like "hurry up" on the knocker. Yeah, hurry there. up. And so it's got to have duct tape, or you got to have duct tape for a studio. That's right. But, but then we would also, we had a, a, a made a partial booth around the drums out of what they call gobos, but they're basically like room dividers like you'd see in an office, like a cubicle, you know, dividers mm-hmm. with windows in them. And so we were able to get some isolation for the, uh, the drum set. And then we would put the guitar amplifier in the isolation room. And... Uh, yeah. Sometime we would open up this long closet that's uh, attached to the isolation room uh, to get kind of a natural reverb. So that right. was kind of cool. And uh, sometimes we put a mic on the amp and put another one in the back of the little in the little closet, the long closet, and that was kind of cool to get uh, you know natural um, natural reverb. Well, it's kind of like a mini version of that uh, the Muscle Shoals cave or whatever where they they move a wall and adjust their reverb under uh, i think it's underground isn't it no it, it was not underground it's, it was, it's uh, artificial but... i went there when i was uh, a young teenager because my cousins were involved in the muscle shoals um uh movement and uh matter of fact they uh my cousin Jeannie uh was the backup singer for percy sledge and then her husband marlon played the guitar and was the producer for a song called when a man loves a woman which has been a huge yeah. mega hit you can still hear it in a grocery store or an elevator. <laughs> um, and uh, the studio was actually built in a shoe store in Sheffield, Alabama. And mm. the shoe store had a main room to sell in, and then it had a, a warehouse in the back. And so they had a one-track Ampeg recorder that was about <laughs> three feet tall and three wide, great big solid cube of stainless steel and had a one-inch tape that recorded one, yes, just one track. Wow. And uh, the So way... all the young listeners are just uh, going to try and use their imagination here yeah. because... <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a it's giant steel box that a, records a one track. That recorded one track. <laughs> and uh, so in order to get their echo or the reverb, they uh, took the warehouse and they mounted a speaker through the wall that would play into the warehouse, and then they mounted a, a microphone close close by, and so it would play the sound and bounce it off the back wall uh-huh. and re-record it in the microphone, which they had to do in real time because mm-hmm. they only had one track. There was no overdubs, and then they got real no Pro Tools in those days. No, no Pro Tools. <laughs> uh, 
And so uh, then they got real clever and they built a wall that they could move back and forth in the warehouse to shorten Adjust the it, yeah. delay time. Then they painted lines on the floor like a football field so they could measure it. Mm-hmm. And uh, they put handles on the wall so the whole crew would have to run back in there and grab the handles on this huge long wall and slide it up to make a shorter uh, delay time. Hmm. And uh, they then they put wheels on it. And eventually they <laughs> so put... So it evolved with the, with the uh, studio, it sounds it, like. It did. <laughs> the it, technology. Just... It did. And eventually they put pulleys with ropes so they huh. could pull it forward and backward from the, the front and not have to do the whole thing. So it was pretty <laughs> pretty amazing. You talk about yeah. real rudimentary, but if you've ever heard When a Man Loves a Woman by Percy Sledge, well, you too can make records with one track, you know, if you had to. Well, uh, your new music is more the Western swing style. I know you, uh, you started playing more jazz kind of stuff around here too, which we'll talk about a little bit later. Uh, but uh, your first track here is Chili Dogs Only Bark at Night. You want to talk about how that one came to be? Yeah, Chili Dogs is, uh, I really love Western Swing because it's a combination of uh, Western themes and cowboy music and actual swing rhythms. It really swings. And the way it came about was the, the fiddlers and other musicians out in Oklahoma and te- Texas were really affected by the big band swing movement in the 30s and 40s, and they were hearing it over the radio from even Chicago way out on the plains. Mm -hmm. And they wanted to get in on the swing and jazz action too, but if they played East Coast jazz, then the the folks in the you know down there in Texas and Oklahoma didn't like it very much, mm-hmm. and so they'd start you know throwing bottles or whatever you know <laughs> beer bottles at them. So they figured out this thing to do, and that was to play an old Texas fiddle tune, uh, like Cotton Eye Joe, and then they'd jam it. They they uh, jazz it up and with put a swing, swing rhythm. Put the swing rhythms. The on swing it. rhythm, mm-hmm. and then and then they could. Then they could jam. Everybody could take their turn and jam and have a lot of fun. And then when the bottles started flying again, they'd they'd go back and play Cotton Eye Joe on the <laughs> fiddle. And so uh, it was an amazing marketing tool. See, musicians have been dodging beer bottles for ages. They have. They have. They have. Uh, even in dry counties. <laughs> but uh, it, it was a really clever way to, uh, you know, it's a, a marketing tool and a mm-hmm a good way to compromise with the popular music of the day and still get to get your kicks, you know? Right. Uh, so I've always liked uh, Western swing music, even though I've mainly played uh, straight ahead swing and jazz here with my band Tuxedo Junction here in, uh, in Huntsville. But um, after I kind of retired from everything else that I've done over the years, uh, we decided to move to the Nashville area where I just have a whole lot more people to play with and have a lot of fun up there playing with awesome players. And I've been very fortunate to meet people like my friend Ned Ramage, who was a film producer in Nashville, and he knows everybody. <laughs> and so I've gotten to know the uh, the Time Jumpers and Ranger Doug from Riders in the Sky and uh, and Vince Gill. And, and half uh, of them are your neighbors now, too, right? <laughs> some of them are my neighbors, yeah. Vince Gill's drummer lives, uh, you know, two blocks from me, and uh, Steppenwolf's guitar player lives down the end of the street. And <laughs> so it's just an amazing change if you don't yeah. have to make a living, which is, right. which is the real trick in Nashville because there's just so much competition. But mm-hmm. for me, it's just a huge, wonderful playground. And 
we're hoping to come back down here to Huntsville and bring some of that wonderful Nashville talent yeah, down here for y'all to hear. So what about this song in particular, Chili Dogs? Oh, the Chili Dogs song. Yeah, you asked me about that. Well, I was uh, trying to get some songs written for uh, for our, my new band, The Wondering Cowboys, in order to record. And uh, so I was asking some of these successful songwriters in, in my area where I live, um, you know, if they'd like to help me co-write some songs. And uh, pretty much... Pretty much what happened was they kind of said, well, we really love Western swing music, but, you know, it's real important to us to write things that are commercial, you know, commercial country, because this is how we make our living. Right. And so I really couldn't get anybody to spend the time. And uh, so at a certain point, I just said to myself, well, you know this, you know this genre as good as anybody, and you know what it is. And honestly, I just kind of took a staff writer approach and said, I know how Western Swing is structured. I know how it's played. I know what kind of chords are used. I know that it tells a story. I know that it often has some kind of Western or Southern theme. I know that uh, it, it's good when it's a little humorous. Mm-hmm. And so I just kind of started um, uh, what you might call, you know, it's like recipe writing. Uh, I don't, right. I don't con- consider myself just a, a huge, amazingly uh, uh, gifted uh natural writer but i did seem to make some songs in that period of time that that uh, seemed pretty appropriate and seemed to work just great and uh, they mostly came from just comments that people would make or things that things things that folks would say and when i had my friend will uh visiting me he's a, a jazz guitarist too that uh, we went to college and studied classical guitar together years and years ago and we were just joking around and playing guitars about something and Will said something about chili dogs only bark at night. I don't know even know where that came up, but it was <laughs> maybe you can imagine how it came up. <laughs> you know, <laughs> maybe that was our first release. I don't know, but anyway. <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, but anyway, Will uh, Will said made this statement. You know, chili dogs only bark at night, and so. I thought, no, that's gonna be that's a song. You know, chili dogs only bark. <laughs> there at you night. go. And so I started thinking about what that meant, and uh, my first thought was about about our dog Mitzi, who is a a, a, a fox terrorist. Yeah, she's a she's a terrier mix, but I call her a fox terrorist. And that gave me some more fodder for the song. So I started writing this song about how bad my dog is, and and how nice it would be to just have chili dogs because they only bark at night, and she barks all the time. Uh-huh. So that's kind of how the song got started. And uh, one of the most interesting aspects of the uh, recording was when we started recording the song, my bass player, Avent Lane, uh, accidentally knocked on his big bass, which some people call a doghouse bass. Yeah. And my friend Ned's, uh, who was the engineer at, at the time, his dog, Traveler, is a big boxer kind of dog. And Traveler started barking every time Avon would <laughs> tap on his face. So uh, we recorded Traveler's bark, and if you listen to Chili Dogs, you can hear Traveler barking at the door knock right at the very beginning. So uh, we had some fun with it, and uh, it came out. I think it came out well. Well, good deal. Well, uh, so this is off the new CD, The Wondering Cowboys, just the self-titled there. And uh, so this is Rick Job and The Wondering Cowboys with Chili Dogs Only Bark at Night. Oh, oh, oh. 
got a dog and she ain't right. She barks at the world and make us all uptight. Gonna give her to someone that'll treat her right. Cause chili dogs only bark at night. Yes, chili dogs only bark at night. I'm all asleep and I'm wrapped up tight. My wife don't like it and that's not right. But chili dogs only bark at night. Chili dogs only bark at night. She don't know she's little and she gets real pissed And she jumps on a big and like he don't exist But chili dogs only bark at night They keep me happy and that's alright They're quiet in the daytime and they never fight Chili dogs only bark at night Chili dogs only bark at night She bites folks' ankles, it's a dog on shame, but chili dogs only can do one thing. Yes, chili dogs only bark at night. They're quiet when you eat them till the time is right. I must say they rumble before they see the light. Chili dogs only bark at night. Chili dogs only bark at night. All right, well, we're back with Rick Job from Rick Job and the Wondering Cowboys. Uh, that was his new track off the new CD, uh, The Wondering Cowboys, the name of the CD. And that was Chili Dogs Only Bark at Night. Uh, so uh, I wanted to ask you, like, the whole story on how you got started on music in the very first place. Oh, man, you're really going to go back. <laughs> go all the way back. <clears throat> well, it's interesting because um, the music I'm playing with this Western theme, that's some of the first music I ever heard because my dad played country and Western music when he was a kid. Yeah. And he and his brother, I guess when they were in their teen years, uh, it was during the Depression, and, you know, the kids thought of everything in the world. They didn't have toys to speak of. They are always making something up to have fun with, and they liked to have these little shows, and they'd build a little stage out in this field next to the house, and, you know, they'd get all the kids to pay a nickel or a penny or something, and, you know, <laughs> that's how they try to raise some money. Yeah. So they'd do these shows. So my dad played the guitar, and he had a guitar that I really wish I had with a uh, Hawaiian hula dancer and a palm tree painted on the front of it <laughs> and uh one of his buddies took it away and never brought it back but and my uncle bill played the uh mandolin and so they were quite a team they had a girl singer and they had a little black kid that could dance and tell jokes and i don't know what all it was it was kind <laughs> of a, a little rascals kind of thing going on and uh my <clears throat> my uncle bill played the mandolin my dad played guitar and they were the two main musicians and the music that was popular in those days was um, cowboy music. was one of hmm. them, big one, Western music. And uh, one of the first songs I ever learned uh, from my dad was Tumble and Tumbleweeds, you know. Mm -hmm. He played a rather 
interesting rendition with uh, no, you know, measured bar lines or anything. I mean, it was, I thought it was just wrong, but it, it turned out part of that was stylistic for the mm-hmm. time, you know. But that's the first thing I, I heard that really caught my attention was Tumble and Tumbleweeds. And, uh, and he also learned to play a lot of Jimmy Rogers songs because yeah. they lived in Corinth, Mississippi, and Jimmy Rogers was a brakeman that worked out of... Um, Meridian, Mississippi, and um, and my my grandfather was a, a switchman on the Mobile and Ohio Railroad, and so he would take a train down halfway to Meridian, and Jimmy Rogers just happened to be the brakeman that he would hand a train off to, so he <laughs> actually knew Jimmy Rogers when he worked on the railroad, and uh, I assume that's how my dad learned his songs. So those were some of the first things I do, and I still do. Now I'm back after this whole circle of playing rock and folk and jazz and, you know, back to playing Western-related songs, but with lots of jazz influence on them. So it's a lot of fun. Right, and uh, I know a lot of a lot of those old songs seem like they, uh, I guess a lot of them were written by not classically trained people because the, the music was just anybody with a guitar or string instrument pick it up and tune it the way they want to tune it and put together and usually maybe use the lyrics more than uh, a meter or any, you know, formal way of uh, composing a song to really build it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And what a lot of people don't understand or realize is that in the 1930s, primarily, the music was, was uh, basically it was country blues music. And it was, it was interesting because I just read a book about Mississippi John Hurt, and he was very much influenced by Jimmy Rogers. So the, quote, country music of the white folks was really not very different from the blues music of the black folks. And mm-hmm. they, they, they actually influenced each other and even played and worked together, did music together in uh, informal settings, uh, even though there was a real strict separation of the races in terms of um, in terms of um, the law access, mm-hmm. yeah, access to the different services and whatnot. Uh, so um, that's why I really like country blues music of that period. But when it really and when it sophisticated to some degree in the late 30s and 40s into adding the swing element to country and western music, right? It it really was it really is a fun kind of music, and it just. And I think it's really becoming popular again. People like the Time Jumpers in, in Nashville pack out the 3rd and Lindsley Club every Monday night, 300-plus people. Um, Vince Gill has joined that band. They're on the road right now in California, and they're just, mm-hmm. really, they're just really doing well, and people are really enjoying this kind of anachronistic sound, you know, that takes you back to the swing era and also has some country music, you know, roots too. So it's real interesting. So uh, what pulled you into like the jazz aspect after you started kind of at the country route kind of place? Well, I wouldn't say I started with country so much as that's what I heard and that mm-hmm. uh, but when I really got interested in starting to play music other than just playing in the band when I was a kid, I played clarinet in the band. But when I really started getting interested in playing popular music, it was first about the Beach Boys in the early 60s. Yeah. And then very quickly, it was about the Beatles. Mm-hmm. And so the Beatles were just a tremendous influence on me. Uh, I was born in 1950, so I'm the quintessential uh, boomer. You know, so <laughs> right in my early teen years, the Beatles were getting to be really, really popular. And um, 
it was kind of an odd thing because uh, my family, my my cousin, for example, uh, Jeannie, Jeannie Green was her name. She was a backup singer with Elvis at the time. And mm-hmm. th- all the British bands were being influenced by uh, all these American rock and roll singers yeah. <laughs> that started the thing and that my family had contacts to. But when the Beatles took it and put their spin on it and sent it back, it had a certain exotic quality to us right. here in the United States. <laughs> well, yeah, I, th- I think about like some of those uh, Beatles songs that are kind of trying to capture the old South kind of feel, like Rocky Raccoon or something, where it's interesting because it's like the British's take off our old Appalachian, you know, banjo-picking music. And it's very, I don't know, it's very interesting sounding because uh, it's, it's like you're, uh, you're seeing a... Uh, I, I hold other nation kind of mirroring you, and then you, what you well, get back is is kind of different. Well, and, and it's also interesting that the the place that things come from, people also often don't respect or recognize. As a right. matter of fact, Elvis was you know always being you know they would burn his records over here. All the preachers would get together and burn his records and do all kinds of things. It started all kinds of controversy. He wasn't all well liked in the South. Yeah, uh, and but to the Brits. Uh, that was just real exotic music. American mm-hmm. music was exotic. And so if you listen to the early Beatles music, there's a lot of rockabilly influence. Yeah. And that comes straight out of, you know, Tennessee, Mississippi, Alabama, Carl Perkins, um, you know, Elvis Presley and uh, Roy Orbison. And so um, it was odd that the music started right at our doorstep, but I really got interested when it came back from across the sea. So right. it's, <laughs> it's kind of neat. Well, all right, so your next uh, song, another original, and straight off the album, is She's a Looker. You want to talk about how that one came about at all? Yeah, She's a Looker is uh, a song about a certain woman that I've been <laughs> married to for <laughs> for 37 years. Uh, <laughs> I sometimes lose track, <laughs> uh, but um, it's my wife, Margie, and... Uh, I I can't exactly remember uh, what was the you know the the thought that originated, except that just to say that after having been married all these years, I still think my wife is a beautiful woman, and that you have an awesome mother, and so somehow it just popped into my head she's a looker and. I gave it the old Western swing Southern uh, treatment, and uh, <laughs> that's where it is. That one she got, she had to listen to you uh, sharpening it up the whole time too. So she did. <laughs> there, there were certain aspects to it that I, I'm not sure she was real fond of when I first wrote it. <laughs> uh, you know, like, uh, but I managed to uh, write the song very diplomatically and and say <laughs> what I wanted to say, and. Uh, it's also interesting that She's a Looker, albeit a um, Western swing song, when we recorded it, I felt like something was missing. And right there at the end, I put a, a, a uh, rockabilly uh, bass, bass line. It's a guitar part, but it, it's like a, a, a boogie bass mm-hmm. uh, from rockabilly sort of feel. And it just really brought something out in the tune. So... Uh, it's just the smallest little thing that we did right at the end, and it just seemed to make it pop right out of there, you know. So uh, I'm glad it, it came about that way. <laughs> well, I guess uh, this one's for you, Mom. Here, <laughs> we That's got right. <laughs> Rick Job and the Wondering Cowboys uh, with "She's a Looker." I got a gal about five feet 
six. She's long and tall, but she ain't no stick. She's a looker. I'm telling you, she's a looker. You know it's true. She's a looker. She looks out for me. I got a gal from old Virginia. She ain't big, but she ain't skinny. She's a looker. She's out of sight. She's a looker. You know that's right. She's a looker. She looks out for me. Job and the Wondering Cowboys with She's a Looker. Uh, I wanted to ask you how uh, the different instruments you play. I don't know if, if uh, any of our listeners know Rick here. You probably know that he plays all sorts of instruments, clarinet and guitar. And uh, I, I wondered, thinking back, I know you picked up the slide guitar for a while and the Hawaiian steel guitar kind of stuff. And I wondered if that kind of brought you into listening to that old Western kind of music again. No, not really, because the slide guitar thing came much, much later than when I got into Western Swing. Uh, I played clarinet in my youth in the band until mm-hmm. I guess I was about uh, 13 or 14, and uh, the Beatles, you know, got me excited about guitars. I um, I got a, sh- a job shining shoes in mm-hmm. order to buy my first guitar, and it was $50, and when I took the job, I told the man at the barbershop, as soon as I get my fifty dollars, I'm out of here because I was allergic <laughs> to the hair and the dust, oh, <laughs> and so I hated. Well, I didn't hate shining shoes, but I hated. I had to sweep up, you know. Yeah. And, you know. So one day, I I had my fifty dollars and my tax and all, and I just said, "All right, bud, I'm out of here." And he said, "Wait, where are you going?" You know. And I said, "Remember the deal we made." <laughs> I'm going to go buy the guitar and I'm going to find another way to make money. <laughs> and so that there was a lot of stimulation there to learn to play the guitar well and that thought just with the thought that maybe I could make money with the guitar. Mm. But I think also about that time I was measuring things in terms of chick magnet, you know, qualities. Yeah. And so I kind of took my clarinet, <laughs> held it in one hand, took my guitar and held it in the other hand and gave them the chick magnet <laughs> test. And somehow the guitar just won out, you know. Right. <laughs> and so it's been years since I got back to playing a saxophone, and it was years, saxophone and, and clarinet, mm-hmm. and I really love those instruments. Um, but the guitar was kind of my way into the popular music, you know, music thing. 
And uh, what did you ask me about that? You asked me something else about playing different instruments. I asked you uh, if the slide guitar kind of uh, oh, helped, the, helped get you back into hearing the Western listening swing. for that Western swing sound. Yeah, that... no, not really. Uh, what happened was back, back in the about 1979 here uh, mm -hmm. in... Uh, in Huntsville, right about when we started the Fret Shop Music Store, uh, I started working with Larry Lynch, and Larry is uh, Claire Lynch's, was Claire Lynch's husband, and they were in the Front Porch String Band. Claire's, you know, had nom uh, Grammy nominations for bluegrass singing. Larry's an awesome player of the fiddle and the um, the mandolin. I think now he does a lot of Celtic music around Huntsville area, and he's just uh, an amazing player. We started a little band called Moondog, and Moondog was uh, Larry's idea. He wanted to combine jazz with bluegrass music, uh -huh. which folks were doing at that time. And I sort of knew the jazz side, and Larry knew the bluegrass side. So we kind of met in the middle, and we got us a uh, an upright bass player. I played guitar, and Larry played uh, mandolin and uh, and fiddle, and we started playing little college bars and stuff around, and we just had a great time. So that's when we first discovered Western Swing because it's closely related to like uh, gypsy jazz. And yeah. it's also um, uh, closely related to like dog music and space grass and all those fusions between bluegrass <laughs> and jazz. So that, that's how I got started playing Western Swing. I played it off and on with different, uh, different bands um, over the years. And... We did a lot of gigs with Tuxedo Junction that were real formal, but when people needed a Texas barbecue or just wanted to have some fun, we'd, we'd play Western Swing. I think for a while we called it Southern Swing, the name of the band. and It had different names, you know, uh, and that was a lot of fun. Then I kind of moved away for, from it for a while, but when I went up to Nashville, it just the first people I met were Western Swing players and the last couple of years, I really had been wanting to do it, and so I did start playing uh, steel guitars. And yeah. uh, but when I got to Nashville, a really interesting thing happened. I met my friend Ned, who was interested in the project, and and he just knew everybody in Nashville. Ned Ramage, mm -hmm. and and Ned uh, had been studying jazz guitar for the last ten or fifteen years, uh, just more or less as a hobby, while he did. Uh, film production and computer stuff. And uh, and so I actually got Ned to play guitar for me so I could play the steel. Uh-huh. But in, in Ned's studio, which is, we call it Music Row and a Half Studio because it's right over the alley from Music Row <laughs> in, in Ned's house. And I kept the going... The next Music Row. Yeah, the, the, yeah it's the, across the alley from Music Row. <laughs> and so... Um, uh, we we started practicing and Ned was playing guitar and I was playing the steel and and so I noticed he had a double neck steel guitar in his studio uh -huh. and I was like Ned what is that for you know and Ned said well I used to play that you know for a long time and I just got frustrated and I and I gave it up and started learning jazz guitar instead so I said well why don't we just try swapping for the fun of it and just see what happens and I'll yeah. go back to playing guitar and you can play the steel well. So as soon as we did that, I became aware that Ned was already so much further than I might be in another five or ten years with mm -hmm. the steel, and and I'm really quite a good rhythm uh, swing guitar player, and and 
until I went to Nashville, I thought I was a lead player, but I met some other guys there that <laughs> <laughs> blow me out of the water. But uh, so I said, well, this is crazy. I need to play swing rhythm and you need to play steel. And we just swapped. And yeah. we've been doing that ever since. And uh, I have really gotten into a very specialized uh, rhythm guitar style that was popularized by Eldon Shamlin in the uh, Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys, which is the most famous Western swing band. And I've really been working on that, a special style of playing on the rhythm guitar, and it's become the main thing that I do, aside from clarinet, which in Nashville is a bit of a novelty, and so I do get to play my clarinet some, too. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask you if your, uh, your work with jazz and classical helped a lot with uh, learning all that finger-picking and kind of uh, forms for swing. The, the jazz did, of course, because uh, swing is... Uh, you could almost say swing is a subset of jazz. Uh -huh. And most guys that play Western swing have been jazz players. Uh, it's just kind of a natural training ground for playing swing. And uh, when I was a jazz player, I never really got too deep off into jazz. I, I got up to playing some bebop and stuff. But um, when jazz became uh, very cerebral at a certain point, I sort of backed off and I I enjoy the... Uh, something that's a little more easygoing and uh, more accessible to, to other people and stuff like that. So uh, Western Swing's kind of a natural for a, for a, someone who has jazz training. As far as classical guitar goes, not a lot of direct influence there. I do, as you know, have a degree in classical guitar. And uh, uh, the finger picking is not much a part of the um, Western Swing uh, you know, genre. So there's not a lot of help there, but a classical guitar is just absolutely wonderful background for any kind of guitar playing because right. you, you learn the neck and you learn the notes and you you uh, you master a whole lot of techniques, um, you know, trills and, and scales, and you just master a whole lot of things. So it was more of a, a technique um, background from classical mm -hmm. and more of a musical background from playing jazz and swing, you know, that, that helped out. Well, we got a couple more tracks from the album. Uh, the next one, I think it's my favorite off the CD, uh, Dis to Life. Uh, uh, do you want to speak about how that one came to be? Or? Yeah, Dis to Life. Um, after I had this band, Moondog, uh, it kind of broke up at some point. And I started working with Mike Shepard, who owns a sign company here in town in, in Huntsville. And Mike played the string bass for me, and I played the guitar. And uh, we call that band the Underdogs. Because we were no longer the Moon Dog, and it was smaller <laughs> or something, and we so we called it the Underdogs. We kept the same tradition of playing swing music and novelty swing novelty songs, and yeah. we actually there was actually a com comedy element to what we did too. You know, we were I used to say we were a reverse Smothers Brothers because because uh, we tried doing comedy and we ended up doing music or something like that, but. Uh, one of the things that we did was uh, we decided we wanted to try to write some music. So we we took a week and went out to um, Tim's Ford Lake, uh, and Margie came along with our new baby, your sister Melanie, and we stayed in a cabin out at the lake, and Mike came out there, and we just spent a whole week canoeing around and fishing and playing music and writing songs. So uh, Mike and I were in the canoe, and we were paddling around, and one of us just said, "Man, this the life," you know. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and so we immediately said, "Ah, we got to write a song about that, this the life." So 
Mike and I started writing the song, and it didn't take us any time. It just kind of popped out, and it's kind of in the uh, tradition of George Gershwin, you know, something like Summertime, right? that kind of thing. So it's 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 very uh, bluesy, maybe in a New Orleans blues kind of style, mm-hmm. uh, and I enjoy it very much. It's also a good opportunity for me to play some real bluesy clarinet on that thing. So Yeah, and that's always... I don't know. You you just don't hear clarinet around much anymore. Uh, some of the big bands and uh, jazz bands have a little bit of it, but I just love the sound of the clarinet. It's got a lot of uh, character to it, and I mean, you see saxophones, and uh, I see that a lot more at the jazz around here. But uh, but the clarinet's got such a personality, I guess. Well, and and also when I played in Nashville. Uh, People can't wait to hear what it sounds like, but they'll say, do you need a microphone? And a lot of times I'll just say no, because the thing is so loud. <laughs> it's so high and it get it can get so loud. You right. know? So uh, people are really, really like it because it's novel and, uh, you know, it, it's just a great original blues and, and jazz instrument. All right. Well, we got uh, Dis to Life. Catfish frying in the pan, guitar strumming, mama in my hand. My old lady loves her man. Whoa, just a life. Got no place I. Supposed to be laid back easy, and it's plain to see. Weeping willow, don't you weep for me? Oh, just a life. I ain't got no troubles, and I ain't got no worries. Seems like every day should be just like today. Only blues I see are the blue skies above me. So I'll just lay back here, watch the clouds roll away. Feel so good now to be feeling fine. Watermelon hanging ripe and on the vine. Honeysuckle, summertime. Whoa, whoa, this delight.
troubles and I ain't got no worries. Seems like every day should be just like today. Only blues I see are the blue skies above me. So I'll just lay back here, watch the clouds roll away. To be feeling so fine, watermelon hanging right on that vine, honeysuckle, summertime, whoa, distillate. back uh that was dist life uh, from rick job and the wondering cowboys and mike shepherd co-wrote it that's right mike shepherd and rick job and uh we've got one more track to play for y'all the snuff dippers ball and uh i heard i hear there's a story behind that one yeah there's a story behind that one for sure um the snuff dippers ball was a real thing that took place here in huntsville i think it was every saturday night in the 1930s and 40s and uh, when we first started the fret shop in around 1980, uh, we were quick to meet a fellow named Monty Sano Crowder. And uh, that was how he pronounced it, Monty Sano Crowder. And Monty Crowder, I think, is still alive. He's extremely old at this point. Uh, and Monty was a, a fiddler and also a real character. You know, he just, he had a great big old round beer gut, although I don't think it was from beer. <laughs> And he was just an old country boy. And uh, when he would come in the store the first time we met him, I said, well, Monty, that, you must have been born on the mountain or something. And, you know, they named you after the mountain. He said, well, son, I was born on Monty Sano. He says, but they named a mountain after me. <laughs> <laughs> so that's kind of typical of what you get out of Monty Crowder. And there was and there was some other old guys around here that were just amazing players. Monty mm -hmm. was a fiddler and there was several old guys and they they started hanging around in the fret shop a lot. So Yeah. My partner Bill learned a lot about fiddling from them and old songs and whatnot. And Monty used to talk to us about the Snuff Dippers Ball. And the Snuff Dippers Ball, uh, if, if I'm correct, was held in a, a room uh, in one of the upstairs loft areas of one of the buildings, business buildings down, downtown. Uh -huh. I think that's where it was. And every Saturday night, they'd get a band together, and they'd play everything from old uh, uh, bluegrass hoedowns to, uh, to swing music and some western swing, too. And so... It was just a really interesting combination because people could dance jitterbug to it or lindy hop or they could uh, two-step to it, I reckon, or uh, just any number of things. You didn't have to dress up to go there. It was, you know, it was more of a, a farmer's farmer's night out in town. But if you wanted to dress up, you could. And I, I thought it was real interesting uh, sort of a social experiment that was apparently really, really successful. Some of the older people here in town still remember that there was a Snuff Dippers Ball. And the Snuff Dippers Ball just seemed to me like it was a, a, a good uh, metaphor for uh, our philosophy of what our music is about. When you mm -hmm. play Western Swing music, in Nashville, it's usually listening music. But 
in its more original form, it's dancing music. So down in Texas and Oklahoma, they still have Saturday night dances, and people dance to the two-step to country music, and they dance uh, swing steps to the Western swing. And uh, so I guess I just kind of had this fantasy that if we were playing, people could come dressed up, or they could come in their overalls, or mm-hmm. they could be chewing some snuff and have to go outside to spit, <laughs> or or you know, or they could be wearing pearls, uh, and they could be swing dancing, or they could be two stepping, or mm-hmm. whatever. And it's, it's just about pure entertainment and uh, enjoyability right? and, and danceability. And, yeah, and, yeah. And so it's yeah, and so that was just this kind of fantasy I had, and and so that started uh, me thinking about the Snuff Dippers Ball and how our performances could, to some degree, be a re- recreation of that. And it actually has been happening. We've been playing for swing dances in Nashville and Huntsville where uh, the young people are discovering that, hey, you really can swing dance to Western swing music. They don't just call it swing for no reason. Right. And uh, we like to play some uh, kind of authentic country music too, like some Bakersfield and stuff like that too. And uh, so people can two-step if they want to. And some of them do that. So that's kind of what it's about that's our that's our genre we're trying to that's our venue we're trying to tap into there's so. well yeah they um we've got the swing dance society and there's at least three or four of them up in nashville i'm sure and uh there are that's always i i mean i've i've played a couple of swing gigs and it's always fun when people are dancing to it because it's kind of a i mean it's it's kind of a lost art nowadays you've got djs that play dance music that's you know techno or some kind of uh you know artificial music nowadays uh, but when when you've got a live band and a live audience, there's really some connection there. There is, and 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 the young people in these organizations you're talking about have really revived the spirit of the uh, original uh, swing era. You know, in terms of the dancing, uh, it 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 was not slow music. It was right. It was pretty pretty bouncy fast music. And over the years, I think swing kind of slowed down as the first generation <laughs> aged. You know. <laughs> I remember when we first started playing swing music in Huntsville with Tuxedo Junction. That's one of the things that people uh, people would say. They say, "Well, that's how we they played it back in the day." You know, they played it fast like that, and we sort of had right. a reputation for bringing the bring the pep back up and into it. And and it's definitely there in the Western swing. It it definitely moves on. So well, if you want to work out too, you go to a swing dance and. Uh... They'll swing dance for about four hours, and then uh, everybody says, okay, it's over, and then they go to another dance, and then they dance till like 3 a.m. or something. They do. So if you want to to get your endurance, man, these dancers just keep going. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it makes me glad that I'm in the band and not... That's uh, right. <laughs> yeah, our fingers wear out eventually. So. Yeah, but not as fast as those dancers, or as I would on the dance floor. <laughs> well, Rick, thanks so much for coming down from Nashville. Uh, hope to hear more of you soon. Come back and... When you got another album out, <laughs> well, back I in your home studio, really. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I just want to add that I've got something new I'm working on. It's called the Nashville Swing Review. And, oh, I'm, right. and I'm putting together a thing that is going to uh, include the city and western swing music. And it's going to include both varieties and kind of be a, a review of, of both of those. And I'd also like people to know that they can go on Reverb Nation and mm-hmm. just search for Rick Job or Wondering Cowboys, whatever, and you can hear uh, little examples of our the music that's on our record album. You can also go to rickjob.com if you want to order a CD, uh, or you can email me at 
rickjobe at comcast.net, R-I-C-K-J-O-B-E. So that's about it. Okay. Well, uh, so you'll have the new stuff on rickjobe.com then. Will do. All right. Well, uh, I was... I am Ben Job. I was about to say I was Ben Job. I'm still, <laughs> I'm still Ben Job. Uh, you still are. <laughs> signing out from Spice Rack Studios. Thanks again for listening. Uh, get with us at spice-radio.com to keep up with us, and we'll have links to uh, all of Rick's websites, rickjob.com and his Reverb Nation website, where you can hear bits of the new album, Rick Job and the Wondering Cowboys. Well, thanks again, Rick. You're welcome, and, and they, uh, they can also friend me on Facebook if they want to. I all love, right. I love to have lots of friends. <laughs> You'll accept their friend request. and That's right. <laughs> I'm not tweeting awful much, but they That's can right. friend me. We're still we're still getting the swing of the tweet thing, so I know in a, in another two months they'll have a new uh, social media for us to clamber on and try and use. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you, if you want to get involved with us, uh, just get on our Facebook or just uh, send us a line at SpiceRadioHuntsville at gmail.com. Thanks again, and have a great night or day whenever you get to listen to our podcast. We don't wear no fancy clothes. We don't wear no later hose. Pair of boots and the way we go at the Snuff Dippers Ball. You don't have to play the fiddle if you only dance a little if you're short or if you're tall at the snuff dippers ball snuff dippers ball is on put your party dresses on first thing you know your trouble's gone at the snuff dippers ball been a production of spice radio from huntsville alabama you guys know what you want and you don't have to do too much to get it get with us at spice-radio.com if you have a podcast you make music or art or you have an event that you want to promote in the tennessee valley you can find us at www.facebook.com slash spice radio huntsville or on twitter at spice radio hsv and again our website spice-radio.com